This is Caroline. This is Kat with Chef Online. And this is Mike. Welcome to the Westworld Podcast. Tonight we're talking about episode 306, Decoherence. It was written by Suzanne Rubel and Lisa Joy and directed by Jennifer Getzinger. Jennifer Getzinger is actually going to be back for another episode this season. She is directing the season finale. So we're going to get to see Jennifer's work. How are you guys doing tonight? How is quarantine treating you, Caroline, Kat? Oh, awesome. It's crazy town all the time. I feel like I'm beginning to just think I'm going to turn off the TV and stop reading the news and just act like everything's fine and just completely forget about everything else that's going on. That might be my strategy right now. That's basically what I've done. I've covered the mirror so I don't have to see my hair. That's key. I have thrown my cable boxes out of my apartment window in like an effigy. And uh, yeah, I just play video games and watch TV all day now. That's what I do. And day drinking that too. Uh, duh. I mean, that was pre-quarantine, but sure. Today I plucked one eyebrow and I still haven't done the other one because I'm like, I'll leave that for another day. Quarantine activities. Nice. I like how you're spreading out your beauty regimen. Yeah. Can I tell you that I painted my own nails and I did it in such a way that I did it in a room that didn't even really have good light. And when I turned on the lights, I had slopped it all over the tips of my fingernails. And I was like, you know what? That looks good. I'm fine with that. (laughs) Like, I didn't care at all. I just kind of, I just kind of went from one side of my hand to the other side, like in one sweeping motion. (laughs) I was like, that looks pretty. (laughs) It's quarantine chic. Why can't my fingertips be sparkly as well as my fingernails? What's what's the difference really at this point? Uh, Whose rules? Well, why are we living in some kind of construction? You know, like you do you break that box. Yeah. And maybe people just want one eyebrow to look kempt now cat i mean maybe the one should be a wild woolly i was brushing my teeth yesterday morning and i was not very awake but i had like that so i went to go brush my teeth really fast i looked up kind of like lifted my eyes into the mirror and i was like that's weird my my hair would be so forward because my hair is kind of up you know kind of kramer-esque you know kind of high in the air i was like that is so weird that my hair would be there but there were these two hairs hanging low and I realized they are two stray hairs from my left eyebrow creeping down like a fucking vine off of my face what is even happening (laughs) that is disgusting so so disgusting but also so funny and it must be like a guy older guy thing because Joe Rogan posted that too that his daughters found two like plucked two stray hairs and that they were, he posted a photo in his hand. It was like as long as his palm, those hairs. All right. It's not that long. And by the way, I'm not that old. But oh, yeah, I mean, I love I, the older guy comment. That's a good one. That's yeah. why I said older because I didn't want to say old. You know? yeah. Excuse me while I take a sip of my. I'm respectful. A, I'm respectful. Of your elders? Yeah. As I take my sip of my oval teen here, let me hold my walker, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I old people drink insure. Ovaltine is like if you lived back in the fifties. That's how that's when I was born, when I was a child. That was what we drank. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> I didn't listen. mean it like that. <laughs> all right. We're done talking to you for now. We could all just braid our eyebrow hair. That's the main point. Is I have two of them. Scene and uh yeah, you could, you know, whatever. Who even cares? I think we should all try out new looks during quarantine time, you know? Well, here's the thing. Experiment. I traditionally, you know, I, I'm not a massive scaper, manscaper, but I, I keep 
certain things well landscaped. And my eyebrows are one of them. I don't get them shaved. I don't get them plucked or anything. But, you know, my barber, I use a barber. Like, he takes care of my eyebrows because he appreciates. I have not missed him so much as I missed him when I caught those two uh, those two eyebrow hairs. I was just like, oh, boy, I got to go do something about that. It's getting gnarly out here. <laughs> it's just... I, from what I hear on Amazon, right? Like, the things people are buying are, like, ear and nose cutters like trimmers vibrators and uh like that's pretty much what people are buying is like uh, and that and like um like home hair trimmer things like people are trying make and like waxing kits and shit it's it's a mess people are going to be coming out burned and high on orgasms i guess not to lean into uh cat's offensive comment earlier but i actually have <laughs> a hair nose trimmer and it is a fantastic device it is satisfying it makes a lovely buzzing noise. It is a treat for your ears and especially your nose. It gives you a little tickle. Ew. What are you going to do? I'm a man of an older age, apparently. So. <laughs> and hairy orifices. Hey, I said older. I didn't say old. Oh, you whippersnappers. Let's just talk about the Westworld there. <laughs> Before you forget what happened. <laughs> oh, I wrote it down. Uh, so decoherence, you guys, I mean, I, I think there's an obvious like decoherence becoming uncoherent, lacking cohesion, but it, it's it's actually a term from quantum physics. Are any of you guys here versed in quantum physics? Of course. Why would you even ask that? Obviously, I don't know, young people. It's my PhD, but we're going to let you read it. I kind of clipped out a part that I thought was applicable to maybe this episode, maybe to what the status of Westworld is right now. It says uh, decoherence can be viewed as the loss of information from a system into the environment since every system is loosely coupled with the energetic state of its surroundings. So it, almost kind of like the idea that it's not so much that it falls apart as much as it kind of meshes into the background and you lose, it almost sounds more like you are like a loss of fidelity than maybe strict cohesion. Certainly like William is going through a complete melting of his brain to some extent in this episode and, and and the last time we saw him too. What did you guys think of generally the Council of Williams, his his implant? What was your whole take on that section of the story? Because it was really cut off from everything else tonight. Well, first of all, I think uh, Caroline called it in our last episode because she said William was going to come back and he did. But I found it interesting and I liked the AR therapy. You didn't know if it was real, but then you kind of figured it out that he was, it was a longer virtual reality type thing. But I was thinking it more of in terms of if that happened to me and facing like yourself when you were a kid and then like throughout the stages of your life. And that was pretty creepy if you thought about it from that perspective. But with William, if they were going to show him again, this was an interesting way to show him because I kept thinking, what is this for? Like, what is this going to play out? Um, we're two episodes. This is now we're going to be two episodes from the finale. So I just want to know what his role is. It did lead to more questions, I think, in my mind. I mean, I certainly always love seeing Ed Harris. I, I love how he plays the character. But I was also curious, why introduce him now? Why kind of give this really deep backstory with only two episodes left in the season, uh, at least the season, if not being more final than that? Uh, what, what, did you think about that, Caroline? How did that strike you? It was important to go back to this AR experience for him and having the splitting of the different parts of his, essentially his personality, but his history in general. It enabled us to have a couple things that I jotted down. Like for one thing, 
I very much anticipated going into that childhood bedroom and experiencing some child abuse. And when it turned out that that wasn't the fact, it was that he actually was a really violent kid and his dad drank because he didn't know how to deal with William as a child, not the other way around as William had remembered it. So presenting him as this unreliable narrator for me started to make me think like, I don't know how much of anything he's told us has been completely reliable slash like, can he twist up the truth? Do we all do that? And then like, I, like Delos was asking him like, you know, do you think maybe you've told the story so many times that maybe you've actually come to believe it? So yeah. there was that. And then the whole part about like, did your life just happen to you or did you make choices? Coming all the way through to his little therapy session of does it matter at that point? If you, whatever happened to you and however you got here, at this point, you can still make a choice to do something different. And so that for me is like where he comes into play, where he can say, you know what? I choose to be a white hat from here on out, no matter what I did before. So you think the power of him being able to convince himself of his own story, almost using that unreliable narrator for almost a, a good uh, you know, he finishes killing all of his other selves and he says, you know, I'm finally free. You know, I am the good guy. I've, I figured it out, which seems really to surprise him because he's, he's really convinced himself of not only like a humble beginning of having no friends and no life other than his books, but as he's gone through and evolved, he has come to see himself as a man in black, as a villain. So this was really like a true epiphany for him, whether or not it's true, he thinks it's true that he actually may be the good guy in the story. Is it enough for him to think it's true? I think that for the, his childhood to be chalked up to just being like a lonely kid with books is not enough because they definitely set that up with the with the dad yelling in the other room and William hiding in the corner that he was going to be beat. So not just that he was a lonely kid, but that his father was abusive and was going to come in that room and beat the shit out of him. I hate that kind of stuff. So I was very like ready for that. And when he came in and the dad like cupped his hands on his face and was like, what, what is, what, what is with you instead of hurting him? But like, held his head, his little face in his hands, I was like, oh, William, you remember this very differently than it went down. That kid, he had a little bit of bloodlust in his eyes as he was talking about how he not, should have knocked all the kid's teeth out. Yeah. Yeah, the dad definitely looked bewildered on yeah. how to deal with that. That's not in the uh, parenting handbook at all. Mm -mm. So that's the thing. Like in his mind, he was dragging his feet to go in that bedroom because history that he tells himself is that he was an abused child because his father drank. That's the history he tells himself every day. The reality when he revisited the situation was no, he was a violent kid with a father who had no idea what to do with him. He was not in fact abused. He abused others. That was like a very like, whoa, untangling of this whole thing. It's also interesting that that device that they put him in to get into the AR thing, that he didn't have it before. So it it spoke to the world a little bit or the quotes world that they're in. But it could be because he's head of the company that he didn't get one and it's only for the peasants or whatever. So that could be another thing too. You're talking about the, that limbic implant because we should yeah. talk about that because I'm curious if you guys would, would do that on purpose or not. Would, would you guys go through that? Because for me, that friggin' drilling sound, I feel, you guys, I don't know if this was just a sensitive day for me or what, but there were so many moments in this episode that were, for lack of a better word, triggering. I feel like there were so many, the, the drilling sound, ah, I have a whole thing about someone biting any body part off of me. So when he bit that guy's finger off, ah, that's like a whole fear of mine because of how much we trust other people and biting in particular is the thing with me. 
And then the child abuse thing, I hate that when I see it in shows, when I see anything, I'm, I'm horrible at being like, why does anyone find this entertaining? Like I'm terrible. So there were so many moments and that drilling of that implant. Oh my God, I got the heebie jeebs. Did you guys make it through that part? Okay. And would you do that in order to have those trips like that? Here's from insights website because insight is the company. Uh, Serox company is the one that makes these limbic implants, the limbic tabs that we that we've been watching everyone take all season long. They look like the little metal discs, with the wires in them, those connect to those implants. That's how they work together. And those tabs, it's kind of like a tailored like acid trip. They dissolve in your mouth. They interact with the metal implant in the roof of your mouth and using your olfactory sense rushes into your limbic system, which creates like a very real experience. It, it turns it into electrical impulses and you experience whatever the programmed hit is. And Insight's website, because HBO is genius at their marketing, has like a whole series of different names, like that desert oasis that they met, that they mentioned, they're going to put them in for an hour to relax them. That's one of the choices. There are a ton of choices. There are three choices you can actually listen to. One is like a fire crackling. One is wind. And another one is like a stormy night. And each of them has a whole background discussion on like what it's supposed to invoke in your memory, which, you know, sounds kind of awesome. You know, who does it? It's like taking a, uh, like a white noise machine to the next level. But their website says, all it takes is a small, painless metal implant that is carefully contoured to the roof of your mouth, which pairs instantly to Insight's IDA app. Nothing about what we saw him go through seemed painless or smooth or gentle in any way. It reminded me very much of Clockwork Orange and officially took me off of the Insight mailing list for limbic implants. <laughs> As someone who just got their wisdom teeth removed and a few months ago and I'm pretty good with pain and stuff but the sound it was giving me PTSD because of those like uh, the clamps that were holding his mouth open the thing that they put in my mouth to hold it open it was just hurting because my mouth was getting sore it brought me back to that moment so I don't think I would do it but on the other hand the idea of being able to be transported somewhere else seems pretty enticing especially one thing that I found really interesting is the first weekend of my quarantine started when episode one hit of Westworld. It's been an interesting parallel to kind of have this show with like the choices and the, and the dis I don't know, dis decisions and things like that. So week six of my quarantine and then week six in this episode, I think I would want to be transported somewhere else. So I think it depends how they're selling this and what world they're in. It seemed like there's tons of people in in this world and Caleb has one too where uh, it's just like a normal thing so I wonder how they got people just to do it because it's basically another thing of control and it's not real re it's not your reality it, it's interesting because when Caleb talked about it when he confronted Liam Liam Jr. about it he made it sound like it was forced upon him not that it was a voluntary thing because and earlier than that confrontation when the goons are looking for dolores and they take him up to the roof and uh his little buddy george the robot like kills him or gets killed they mention that he's got the really military grade like high-end implant in his mouth and i think it ties into the idea of the outlier, the outlier concept that we've heard about, and the chair and the AR goggles that we saw William in tonight, there was a flash uh, towards the end of last week's episode. Caleb had a whole flash before his eyes as Liam was dying on the beach, and one of them was him writhing and screaming, wearing the AR goggles, the same kind of goggles that William was wearing tonight. So Caleb definitely did time in a 
inner journeys like rehab facility. Maybe not the same one because as we learned last week, there's at least 36 of these centers, these re-education editing centers around the world that Sorak owns. But Caleb has gone through this and also seemed to have had a hellish time. It makes sense because they're both outliers that they would get this kind of reconditioning treatment. So. And they called it, I guess, when they were in Natasha's office for that therapy, she said that it was really good for PTSD. That's why mm -hmm. people did AR. And so it makes a lot of sense that coming back from war, that that's what Caleb would have done, especially given that his friend passed and that he would have had these unresolved issues revolving around, you know, a very traumatic issue. And, and obviously for Man in Black, we know beyond Emily and killing her, which yes, they're focused as that as the central issue, but really losing Dolores and all of the atrocities that really he did in the park and trying to figure out whether he was a bad kid coming into the park or whether he, he made the choice to kind of let loose in the park. Really all of it really could be chalked up to PTSD for him. So it made sense that he got the same kind of treatment. Well, and also, I mean, he's, I'm sure he is definitely considered an outlier in the Rehoboam program because he is so volatile, but yet he is also so powerful and so rich with his control over Delos. You give you give an unstable person unlimited funds to do whatever they want, whenever they want. And one of their main hobbies is going into a park and killing semi-sentient beings and, and you know raping and pillaging. That's a person that you should probably keep in, uh, an eye on as an outlier for sure. Uh, his file actually is some eagle-eyed screen grabbers the PTSD reference in his file was actually sympathetic to him as being a survivor of the massacre. And it goes into having like a narcissistic personality and stuff, but the PTSD was actually kind of sympathetic to him as one of the people who got like pulled off the beach that survived all of the killing at the park last season, which is interesting. That makes sense. Yeah, that, that that's what they would focus on. Right. More like a war ish looking thing. Right. That it was like the, the like a battle between the hosts and the and the humans. Right. But the idea that like these guys probably don't even really know uh, even uh, a tenth of the atrocities that William has done in his life and how truly fucked up he probably really is in the head. <laughs> right. Uh, so, so there are some 23 limbic moods uh, described on Insight's website. Do you guys want to hear a couple of them? Yes, go for it. Let's see if any of these put you in a mood for something. Mellow sunset, morning forest, zen garden, ocean breeze, grand canyon, aurora borealis, Misty dusk, snowy woods, soaring eagle. Soaring eagle, I have read, is supposed to make you super focused and hyper productive. Agenda achiever, espresso shot, raspberry resolve, cherry catalyst. I don't know. It sounds kind of wonderful when you, you know you get like cool names and stuff. I'll take um, the soaring eagle or whatever <laughs> before this quarantine. <laughs> you guys should go to Insight. It's insightinc.com. And you can actually listen to three uh, clips of different limbic mood tracks. You can quote unquote explore for yourself. They're pretty interesting. I was playing with them on loop before. One of them has a really good techno beat that I was kind of kind of grooving to. When he gets strapped down initially, right as they're doing the implant, they take some blood from him, and we see it get you know the pneumatic tube sucks it up to the other level, and they run the test. There's a thing that says there's an extra protein found in his blood. Now we learn later on from Shaloris that. The thing she pricked him with a couple episodes ago was a tracker. So we solved that mystery. What did what she do, what did she do to him? But do you guys think the extra protein is the tracker, or is the tracker something separate from the extra protein, and that there is something other, 
something extra about William. I took it solely as that it was the tracker, that it was something that Shaloris had put in there to to keep tabs on him. And I think that them figuring out that he's in that inner journey's place, I think it's Mexico. I think that's where that plane is heading because now they're going to go track him. Go Sonora, Mexico. I think I'm always just skeptical about everything and I feel like they're not giving us... I, I want to think that I know the answer, but I always just think about it too much into it. So I was thinking it was something else because it seems too easy that it would just be the tracker. But it makes sense. I'm going to go with that. But my, my, my initial feeling was, ooh, is he synthetic? <laughs> yeah, and I, th- I think a lot of people have been looking for evidence of that because I, I think a lot of people just feel like it it seems so right for him to end up being some kind of host hybrid, almost like what Delos was trying to do to himself. And, and how funny that, you know, it's a Council of Williams, but then it's Delos acting as the therapist. I just thought that was, it was a real glimpse inside of Williams, like psyche, that that's how he saw the world. Yeah, what a horrible therapist. <laughs> or, maybe, or Or maybe one that you actually need to really like, get you to do some work. <laughs> I forgot though, like it, it didn't even, re- I didn't remember until I really sat down and thought about it that Delos is his father-in-law. And so in many ways acted as his father because his biological dad, you know, he pretty much cast off. It kind of made sense to me that there would be like your father would be the one to sit there and kind of guide you, your mentor-ish. That made sense to me. I, absolutely true. And really, and, and to call him on his bullshit, like you said before. You know, he's the one, it's not one of the Williams, it's him that says to white-clad William, is it possible you've just told yourself these bullshit stories so often that you actually believe it now? I I, I don't know that William had actually ever thought about that before. I think think that was actually like a real breakthrough. Now, granted, it's his own mind doing it, but that's how, that's how that kind of thing works. I think that's like a huge thing as like any adult to like ask yourself because I think there's like lots of people who go around thinking of what their childhood specifically looked like from a child's point of view. But if you actually did the work and went back and tried to think about it, like what would it look like from my adult mom's point of view or my adult dad's point of view? What was going on with them? Most of the time, I feel like you figure out like whether or not they treated you perfectly as a child, you figure out like, wow, they had a lot of shit going on in their lives. And maybe I feel like I was treated this way or that way, but it wasn't for the reasons that I thought. It's just that my child eyes couldn't take it in any differently. So I appreciated that this therapy would actually probably be really effective in terms of going back with a different set of eyes and seeing it from a different point of view. I think it might be useful if you got to talk to five segments of yourself from your life and kind of hash out, you know, because it really helps you with the idea of if I knew then what I know now, or uh, maybe face like the different aspects of your life that you don't remember so clearly, either because you, you choose not to or just because of time or whatever. You know, I think we're often unreliable narrators in our own life. So something about seeing all of the different Williams, the Council of Williams around there, struck me as kind of cathartic. When I watch something and if I relate to it or I can put myself in in the shoes, it's just what I do. And I started thinking about my own parts, you know, if there was five of me, like what what it would look like. And seeing the five of him and seeing him in the different stages, you felt, especially the one that he's in now, looking at these five, I felt a little sympathetic towards him just because when they broke it down like that it made sense like or it made like when when you separate the parts the bad part the good part where it went wrong can understand why he made these choices you understand why you make your choices i thought it was very clever and i really liked how it also just 
kind of tied everything, like the whole series together for me in this in this whole therapy session because it was basically like you like you guys mentioned the line of is it just something that you've been telling yourself? Like, is it the lie? And this whole series is based upon that. Like, people are telling themselves that they think they're the good guy, the bad guy, that they're doing it for the right reasons or for the, you know, wrong reasons or whatever. So I also thought it was a really good like, a show summary in some ways of all the questions they've been asking throughout these three seasons. I like that a lot, Kat, because, dude, I think that fan yep. service-wise, it was amazing, just like we wanted to go back and see Clementine or Hector or anybody else, to actually get a chance to see original young William and get a chance to see Man in Black again, get a chance to see Family Man William. Like, man, Mike, I think you're dead on on the, like, this is the end of the line because they're doing the thing that you do at the end of a series, which is parade out all the characters for all of us to see them one last time. I think William is the perfect distillation of everything that Westworld is really about. Are we free? Even if we are free, if we, even if we have the most money and we have the most unlimited power, are we really free? Do we really control ourselves? Are we passengers in our life? Or do we make the choices that lead us to where we are? Young young William and God, I don't know about you guys, but I, I squeed a little bit when I saw Jimmy Simpson today. Yes. You know? It was so nice to see him back again. I didn't realize how much I had missed him. He says at one point, kind of indignant, he's like, so... I was always going to be this. This this was always going to happen. That's what this whole show is about. And so we're seeing all of it in William. Last episode, and now very much focused this one, this idea of the free will that we've been talking about in different characters. It was all there. All of it was there, I think, in the William discussion. Yeah, that's what struck me the most about that whole therapy thing. And when I was asking myself, where are they going with this? And also, it just kind of cemented the theory that you've put up in us talking that this is probably the last season because it would just tie so well for it to end with him answering like he would be our vessel of answering the question of are you free do you have do you actually have a choice do you have all these things and i would honestly if it ended that way i think i would appreciate it the most instead of trying to drag it on just to kind of you know beat a dead horse but it kind of got me excited actually like the whole therapy session because it was just posing the questions that we've all been we've been going with through westworld this whole time and what's been exciting for me is those questions i'd just like to jump in and say beating a dead horse is probably something the man in black has done several times Pro probably yeah my favorite thing about the entire therapy strand here that we've been going through whether it's him in the group therapy him with natasha or him at the end really like dealing with himself which was really an interesting exploration of all the different types of therapy my favorite whole conclusion of it was it doesn't matter how you got there. It doesn't matter how any one of us is sitting in the chair where we're sitting right now. At the end of the day, it matters how you choose to move forward. And you do have control over that. Whether your dad did something to you, whether you came from a bad marriage, whether you made a bad choice in the past, or whether you made all good choices up to this point, whatever you choose to do from here on, you can choose a white hat today if you want to. And for me, the fact that he's like all in white now is like, okay, he can choose to be the good guy today, even if he wasn't before. Yeah, and I, I think it, it re definitely relates to the idea of if you can think it, you can be it. He, if he wakes up and decides he has to kill all of his other selves and that gives an epiphany that he is the good guy in this story, then let him go be the good guy. You know, God knows we probably can use more good guys in this story. I, I want to talk about a, a thing that we have hinted on or, or chatted a little bit about in uh, our prior episodes, all of us together. Where are we? So I thought tonight there was a lot of evidence that supported my ongoing theory that we're just in another larger park, that we're still in Westworld, the, the idea of Westworld, that we haven't left. 
and, and I, I'm gonna I want to list it and I want to get your guys' opinion. So one, Charlotte's walking uh, Nathan back to Jake's apartment, and we see the the kids tagging the side of the building with the maze. They're graffitiing the maze. Now, why would the maze be out in the real world? Makes sense that it would be in this future world kind of park. But I thought that was weird that we saw the maze there after so much time. We had a lot of talk tonight of William talking about the game. I played the game. It was the game. Killed. I killed my daughter because of the game. You know, I, I, I got turned around. I was confused. He mentions, he, he says the word game, I think, at least four or five times tonight. In the previously ons, we had the Dolores statement where she kind of cups his hand. Uh, it was like hallucination Dolores because she was wearing her old Westworld garb. And she says, welcome to the end of the game. And uh, there was really a reason to replay that scene of all the scenes you could play about catching us up on where the man in black is. Maybe flicking his neck. That would have been a better scene as far as what happened. But they replayed the welcome to the end of the game. So I was sitting there thinking, is this just proof that we're still in the park? This is just the last or another or maybe the last of Ford's games that him and William were always kind of locked in this this psychological battle with each other. You know, the idea of what is real, what is not real. That's a big theme of the season, I think, is what is real and what is not real. What about that? Am I convincing you guys? Am I just talking out my ass? It's possible. The way that they used a lot of the same language, I think that that also supports the idea that this is like some sort of future world or just another world. I know that I had written down talking about like uh, humans as like passengers. Um, I know that that had been a concept that Ford had brought up. There was a lot of different moments, just language that they were used. Like, if you can't tell the difference, does it matter? That business was brought up by William. That was brought up by that orientation host. There was a lot of like repeated language that I think if you put that together with all of the, hey, remember these clips that they play at the beginning of the episode, Mm-hmm. I think it definitely defends your and supports what you're saying. We had all the greatest hits. We had, if you can't tell the difference, does it even matter? We had Ciroc saying uh, these violent delights have violent ends. We had all of the greatest hits tonight. R- really, really winding up for a big finale, you know, getting getting all of the best hits in there for sure. I find it interesting that Ciroc hasn't been, wasn't introduced to us before unless in the previous season. And that feels a little bit cheap in some way. Like, I feel like they would have... If he's the most powerful man in the world and Ford and William have talked a lot about in the first two seasons, like, you know, they would go on about, you know, the Westworld and all that, that that he wouldn't have been mentioned. I feel like if it is a future world, like, of course, they had to throw in like this ultimate villain to get to the end of the game. That would make more sense instead of just introducing him this season and we just have to believe that William never talked about it and they just never brought it up in the first two seasons. So in that regard, I feel like that would prove that maybe we are in like in a future world and this is just the advanced level of the game. I think that would be the most exciting, to be honest. I feel like it feels too easy that they were just able to, like a host was able to leave. I mean, in, in some ways, you, you can look at Rehoboam and Sorak as being his representation because I've really taken to Caroline's idea of either Sorak or his brother being the real world avatar of Rehoboam. Uh, that every episode since we had that conversation a couple of weeks ago has really stuck with me. And I, I see that um, it, it almost reminds me of the brain, you know, it from wrinkle in time, this kind of pulsing, all knowing controls with an iron fist, its world and all of its inhabitants in it, you know, like you walk down the street in wrinkle in time on the planet 
and they're all bouncing the ball in rhythm. They all go inside at the same time. The mothers all come out at the same time. Seems so unrealistic, but makes a lot of sense as a park idea. I mean, we learned a little bit about Ciroc, but he took Maeve into that world, sort of like the field and made it real. And he's been a hologram more than once this season. And yeah, that can be the cool technology in the real world that they have. Or it could be that it's a game. Because <laughs> we, I still don't know if he's real or not, or if he's the avatar for Rehob- Rehoboam, which is so hard to pronounce. I don't know. You know. Either way, either way, it could go either way. There, I, I, I can't say definitively whether it's future world or they're in the in a real futuristic world. <laughs> if that makes sense. Queen, I mean, Queen said it best. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? <laughs> You're such a mippet. Oh my god, they should play that at the end, like instrumental <laughs> with with our master composer. <laughs> oh my goodness. It seems like a real missed opportunity if they don't. I just thought it was really funny for William to look up all bloodied in his white outfit, his nice white outfit, all bloodied, look up at James Dellis and said, I'm finally free! And then Bernard and Stubbs remove his glasses. And it was all literally a dream. You know, it, it was it was as fake as everything else in the show. And it seemed like such a Westworld thing for a character to finally feel like they reached a summit of understanding, that they unshackled some bond, only to learn that, nope, you're still in inner journeys. You, you haven't actually done anything. You've just been sitting in this chair for a while. What was your guys' take on Bernard and Stubbs showing up out of the blue there? I think we knew that they were headed there. They said that. I think Bernard made a made a intimation that they were headed there at the end of last week. Were you guys surprised to actually see them pop in at the end of the episode or no? Well, I'm going to pause and say that I think that most people's greatest shackles or, or jail comes from their own inner thoughts. It's the things that hold them back the most. So I honestly do think that it wasn't hyperbole to say that he was free because he had worked through his inner issues in a lot of ways. He had killed all the memories that had held him back. He he stopped saying, I'm held back by all of these people and all the things they did. I'm going to make choices on my own going forward. I think that that was what was holding him back. The fact that at least the way that they framed the situation was that Bernard and Stubbs were there because everyone else had kind of forgotten he was still in there. It's weird in terms of like, what a coincidence. Now you can actually like leave inner journeys in theory. I do think that it was like giving credit to the work he had done internally that he he is more free. I think he can move forward. He can certainly let go of the shit that happened with Dolores, I think. No, I agree. I think, um, and I think they showed up I, th- I think they've de- they've honestly just been the comic relief this whole season. I hope they get their due a little bit more in the next two episodes. I mean, we only have two, and we've seen them sprinkled about in the episodes, but we haven't really got a lot of meat. We there's just been a lot of hinting towards oh, Bernard is part of Dolores's plan in some way, whether he knows it or not, whether he's doing what she wants without him even knowing it. So it's been weird that they, he hasn't had they haven't had as much substance, and they've been this sort of just comic relief at these times. But I'm digging it. And also, I mean, everyone had broke, all hell had broke loose. I mean, we saw the, her, his therapist hang after he, she saw the, those stats of like what she was going to end up being. And so I wonder how long he was actually in there, in the, in the AR for. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about because he, he watches her, you know, kill herself. And what a, what an interesting way to throw in that the, bedlam unleashed by Dolores last week is still reverberating through. I like that the show just didn't forget about it, because last week we saw a lot, 
you know, as they came through their genre trips, we, we saw the world fall apart very, very fast last week. We saw it was a huge divergence with the, the black ink flowing into the white, the white face of the Rehoboam divergence meter. Uh, but I like that the show didn't forget about it. That showed even down here in Sonora, Mexico, in this Ciroc owned facility, this Insight owned facility, the ramifications of what Dolores unleashed on the subway last week is being felt. And it's being felt, it's driving people to kill themselves. A woman hanging, a doctor hanging herself in her office. The one worker says they're understaffed because people have just started disappearing or dying or just not coming to work anymore. Like, it, the world is in chaos. And I thought it was such a great way to throw that in there, but not call a lot of attention to it, to it too. Did you guys catch what was on her screen? Besides, I mean, her husband says that he's leaving, but did you, did you uh, catch what was written in her profile, in her Insight profile that, that did her in? I think I did. I wrote down that she had had several affairs with clients. She was an opiate addict. She had been like bumped down to only handling you cases, which was like people like Caleb or like William and that he was going to leave her and take the kids. Was there more? No, you're, that was pretty much it. That her prediction, her future prediction was she would lose her license, her medical license in one to two years and that she would be divorced and lose custody of her kids in two and a half years. That's what her insight profile had. That's what Rehoboam had predicted for her based on her opioid addiction and, you know, banging the patients at the, <laughs> at the facility. It was pretty wicked, though, to actually see her feet come off the desks. Like, okay, so again, like, I don't exactly have a suicide trigger or anything. I don't have any personal experience. I don't have any, like, horrific tales. But little moments like that were it wasn't exactly gory but it made your stomach drop. Like when he's like helpless to be able to say anything as they're going through the hallway and they're kind of pulling him away. And then to see her feet dangle, stuff like that like gets to me. Like this was a trip. That is a visceral thing. It's kind of like biting the finger off. It's so unexpected mm -hmm. that it makes, at least me anyway, like I gasp. Like it makes me those kinds of things. Always. Yeah, those things make me pull back and gasp audibly because they're so unexpected because I don't, you just don't expect that. Even on HBO, you don't expect that kind of violence. Even if it's unseen, even if it's bloodless, it's violence. It's, it's really like to your bone violence. But on her desk was a book. It was the bottom, the bottom book in her stack of books piled up was a book that's, uh, is called I Was There. And, uh, just a brief summary of it is a young German boy narrates his experience in the Hitler youth moment during the early years of the Third Reich. That is an interesting little segue over to Maeve who started the episode in a simulation of the Valley Beyond, where she has a conversation with Sorak, and he talks to her about she can't fuck up again or she's going to lose everything that she wants, but she he'll also give her help when she asks for it, because that's what Dolores has. Dolores has allies, and so Maeve, Maeve tells Sorak she needs allies. So she wakes up, and she's in Warworld. So that's where the segue comes in, because uh, that little Italian town is being uh, taken over by Nazis. There wasn't actually a lot about Maeve this week. There was some interesting Easter egg stuff to talk about. But what was your overall take of Maeve's story this week? Honestly, it was just so fun because it was, I know it's leading up to the final episode, which is, is going to be a battle against Maeve and Dolores. And I love this sort of little action. -y, like, hey, I need a team. And I was hoping for like a montage of like them, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, the cue the action uh, team montage where they're all like suiting up and getting their weapons and stuff. But it was more of a Westworld type thing that they did. But 
There's that Team America. You got to have a montage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was really fun. And I felt like that was a little playful in some ways. I liked that they also used the opportunity to have her converse with uh, Lee and with Hector. And it's interesting too, seeing her know that it's a simulation and then she like is seeing the real world happening. So she sees her ball. She sees, she knows the people are getting made and she knows um, that's happening, but she can also see like it might not go well. It was really fun. I felt like Maeve's storyline, like you mentioned, wasn't as insightful as Williams, but I think this one was like the lighter part of the episode and it was more fun for me. I had some of the best visual stuff in it. Uh, the episode played with the aspect ratio thing again when when she steps out of the matrix, when she can see the green numbers in the matrix, in this way they translate where she can see inside Del uh, Delos's labs, the aspect ratio changes from the full screen, it condenses down into like the letterbox format. And it's a, it's a trick that they used in the winter line when she's with Lee, when she realizes that Lee is a simulation that triggers the whole, this is all a simulation talk. The camera did that. And then they repeated it again this week. And I thought it was a really nice callback. And it's just a really cool visual thing to do that maybe you don't pick up right away, but it does change the intensity of the scene if you are aware of it. Caroline, what did you think about Maeve and the allies, the the call for allies? Who, If you were Maeve, who are you calling in for allies from the park? Mm, I think that Clementine was a given. I really wanted Hector. We kind of called him a couple of episodes back. I'll go sappy girl and say, because I love the romance. And they did not disappoint when they came in. She was like, mm, like did the whole mooch. I love that. I love a good Hector Mooch. So that was good. From just reading a couple of articles about who else came to the season three premiere of Westworld, one of the heroines of Shogun season two was there. And so I think that she will be one, but I don't know who that third is going to be. I kind of want to go the girl with the, it's not the dragon tattoo, but the snake. Was it the snake, you guys? Remind me. She would be rad. She's only getting three uh, allies. So Hector yeah, was one Hector's of them. A goner. I think she gets five total, right? Well, well, there Something were no. Like she asked. I think she asked for three, three, and that's why there were three in the bed. And then the fourth one was Maeve's new body because she had she needed a new body after Shuri stabbed her. But does she get someone else since Hector's a goner? Do you get a third? Do you get another one? If so, I'm going with the blonde girl with that. Remember that tattoo? Remember her? One of Hector's got girls. I, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think she'd be rad. She was a badass. She, uh huh. She would kick ass. She'd be super fun to bring back. But here's the problem, though. Sorak, with the first thing he did when he took over the assets, but the first thing he did was he told them pull these three brain balls and then torch everything else. And we saw them hunt Hector's brain ball out, and then we saw them torching all of the storage of um, all of the hosts. So as of now, unless Dolores can get the program up and running to make hosts, all of that data is gone. All of that information is gone. It's just the three brain balls. And now two, because Charloris crushed, sadly, the Hector brain ball in her hand. Who knew that they were so soft and squishy and smoked a little bit if you ever crushed one in your hand? But yeah, Hector is off the board. So we're down to eagle-eyed viewers and, and people who keep track of these things on the internet identified one of the host IDs in the printing machine as Clementine. So she, so she's on the board. She's one of the people in the tank. And then there is this mystery body being made whose number was visible. It began with an SH and it ended with a 17402. Not one of the numbers that has shown up in the show before. So this is probably the Shogun person that, that uh, Caroline, I think you were talking about, I think makes a lot of sense. But that's it. 
those are her those are her two allies that she has to go into battle with now. I don't know if that's enough to stand against the army of Dolores Balls. Caroline, I want to take this to you because you talked about the big kiss and the mooching and, and that was a great like reunion uh, for them because it was finally her Hector was back. But then 20 minutes later, he's dead again. How many times does Maeve need to see Hector die? Uh, how much can we put her through? It seems unfair. It was a lot. I mean, her face, to, her face was like absolutely stricken. It was a lot to have him go so quickly. I mean, I think that we have to know as viewers that, that they are able to be killed like that. So it does help us know that there is a definite end. Once you smash the brain ball, we've got to think Hector's officially gone. So that's an important thing to know because otherwise how we were talking about Kat, if you go through the idea of like, they're indestructible, they, they can live forever. You never really die. Then this is just kind of ongoing forever and ever. But now we know, no, crush a brain ball. You're really gone. That makes it more, you know, the stakes are a lot higher. So I think it was important to see that. I'm sad it had to be our Hector. I mean, I mean, it's interesting that if I guess if the brain ball material was out there because Dolores was able to imprint herself four times or at least three times that we've seen, there's still a mystery brain ball out there um, that we're assuming is a Dolores clone. But I, I guess in theory, if the data is out there and they had a blank disc to record on, I guess they could make a Hector. But for intents and purposes, I think Hector is done. Uh, done at least for the very, very foreseeable future. I, I think we got our last big mooch between these two, which is sad. I want to take the conversation to the interrogation of Simulation Dolores. So so we learn that after Connell's, uh was killed, or Connell Loris was killed last week, Sorok's people recovered his brain ball and plugged her, plugged it into the simulation so that Maeve could go interrogate her. And it was weird to see a very vulnerable Evan Rachel Wood, you know, kind of naked hair covering, uh, you know, her, her chest. Um, you got a little butt crack, but otherwise very, very stripped down in a way we haven't seen Dolores in a long time. What was your guys' takeaway from this interrogation scene? There's a couple of things I want to talk about, but I was just curious your general thoughts of Maeve being in control or was Maeve in control of that situation. What did you think, Kat? It's funny because this season, I guess we have seen Dolores in a, she's all glammed up and it was really weird to go back and, and see her where this was the norm for a while. I didn't like it in some way because it was like, oh, I don't want to go back there because it, it just took me back to those first season uh, memories of her just being over and over like killed and come back and her trying to figure it out. I really liked the play with Maeve and her. I, even when Maeve is going in, because she talks to Lee and Hector in the simulation, and so they're like, are you going to go in? And she's like, yeah, I mean, I or do you really want to kill her or something like that? And she's like, oh, I don't really, I don't really want to. But if she's going to be, what I took away is that she still hasn't decided whether Dolores is foe or friend or whether she even cares I feel like it's still up for grabs. And so this was a way to kind of maybe for her to kind of figure out what, what way she wants to lean. You know, I thought, I think Maeve thought it was going to be a lot more confrontational than it was. But she happened to get the Dolores ball that was kind of zen about the whole thing, I felt. You know, she was kind of like, she when she finally came back online, and I kind of love that phrase, bring yourself back online. It's literally my favorite phrase in Westworld. She looked at her and she kind of just went like, huh, it's you, Maeve. You know, she was whole, real zen about the whole thing. And I think she made some good points that I want to I want to ask you guys about. But I think Maeve thought it was going to be a lot more confrontational. Like, a lot more like the storylines that maybe Maeve has played out under Lee's authorship 
than than what it turned out to be. And I, I think that I think that threw Maeve off of her game a little bit. You know, I thought I think she thought it was going to be a lot more slap at her and be like, "Where is my daughter?" Ah! And it was just kind of like, "No, you're, you you chose against your own kind." I'm not going to. Why would we give you the key, Maeve, to the encryption the encryption key? You sided with the guy who's literally right now downstairs, a couple floors below us, torching all of our kind to death, killing us. Why would you, why would we trust you with that? And I think that's a fair point. I don't know. I, what what did you think, Caroline? What was your takeaway from Zen Dolores versus Maeve in that confrontation? I think that Dolores has a plan, a plan in place and a plan in her mind that she doesn't get ruffled. You know, I mean, I kind of go back to that moment of those two assassin guys kind of jumping out of that car to, to kill Caleb. And she just steps in front and mows him down. Like, that's where her brain space is. So I wasn't exactly surprised to have her wake up and be like, hey, <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I'm in the middle of some shit. And Maeve's still piecing her team together. So I just think that there are different stages of the game. And when Maeve catches up, I think that they will be, you know, two honest-to-God strong teams to go up against each other. But until then, Dolores has the upper hand in, like, the chill factor for sure. So from Dolores's point of view as the defender of her race, and she's really on her soapbox about the fact that when Sorak is all done, Sorak, the guy you're siding with, whether or not you agree with him, you are siding with him right now, Maeve. And when it's all said and done, there's only going to be a handful of us left. From that point of view, as the defender of their people, does she have a point to not trust Maeve? You know, when it comes to why would I give you the encryption key? Is she making valid points? I guess every side, every argument has two sides. But it was pretty compelling to me to hear Dolores talk about the faults with Maeve's argument at this point. Yeah, I think you're right, though, because because ultimately Maeve is as narcissistic as, you know, any of the humans in terms of like, she just wants to get to her, her kiddo and be over in the forge and that's fine and that's okay. Dolores has a much bigger plan. That's kind of why I just think that like, they're just in, on, in two different leagues right now. I think that's easy to kind of wag her finger at Maeve because Maeve's just not there yet. Maybe when she gets her team together and things kind of start gelling as to like what they're actually doing, maybe she's gonna realize the bigger picture. But right now she's got a very simple goal and it's all about herself. And Dolores' is way bigger than that. And Dolores zings her with that. She says to her, you don't see the big picture yet because you haven't lost anyone close to you. You know, and the people you've lost, they keep coming back to life. And then she looks at Hector and says, how many times have you died for her? <laughs> you know, and he looks at Lee, who is not even, he is just a computer simulation. He's not even getting, you know, back in, or maybe not. I mean, we don't know. Maybe he's the other one, but I, I don't, I doubt it. It only took you one time to die for her. You know, so the whole point, I think you're dead on. Dolores is like, you are playing checkers, bitch, and I'm playing chess, and you don't even understand. And like, not happening. even chess, like intergalactic 3D space chess. And, and you're over there playing tiddlywinks, you know, like, you just don't get it yet. And I don't blame Maeve. I mean, for everything that we've been shown, Dolores was an original who had a lot more time to evolve. She had a lot more things happening to her. Maeve's storyline has always been ultimately her and her daughter. She had that original you know, goal and she really hasn't wavered. Whereas Dolores has changed a lot. If you think about some of the beginning stuff, it was a lot about protecting her dad, protecting her ranch, protecting you know, just small little bits and pieces to growing it bigger and bigger and bigger. And so she's just changed a lot and had a lot of things happen to her I don't fault Maeve. She's just not there yet. You know, she'll get there. And also being raped and murdered and mutilated, at least by William, on the regs. Like, so much of Dolores' existence in the park was just as this this punching bag 
of, of sexual and physical abuse. Yeah, I, I think you're dead on there. That made my head hang when you said that. I was like, you, I hate that. But stuff yeah, so right. Much, I mean, but it's so true. Yeah, I mean, and through suffering is going to come this more sophisticated, more complicated idea of what has to happen. Because if 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 mm-hmm. less things happen mm-hmm. to you, you think that oh, you could just walk away from these people or you could just you know do xyz to sort of like contain them but if you're dolores and you're like no dude i've contained them i've tried to do this i've tried to do that and fucking that doesn't work you've got it's got to be diabolical where we're going now cat simulation dolores says to mave when they're when they're arguing about the moral morality of their action she says we're not saints we're not villains we're just survivors does being a survivor give you an out to act as, I mean, maybe being a saint is acting like a saint is a good thing, but does being a survivor give you an out to act as a villain also? Like, do you, or, or, or is there a responsibility to kind of find a balance there? Be a survivor, but not just like, don't fucking kill everything that comes in your path. It can't be that black and white. I think it's <laughs> Westworld pun intended. I think she might view it that way. Maybe she thinks like, I've survived all this shit, so fuck all y'all, what what you did to me. I don't, I mean, in the general scheme of thing, I wouldn't say that just because you're a survivor means you can go and do what ultimately was done to you, because does, doesn't that mean it's hypocritical? For that argument, I don't think so. I don't think it gives you the right to go and do, do that specifically just because you are a survivor and you're going to go take justice on these people. I mean, if you want to go do it just because you feel like it and you want to do it because you are a survivor, maybe, but um, I don't necessarily think the moral of it, I don't think that equates. I mean, that's a very big question. Uh, I can't fully answer that because I think there's a lot of gray in that question. But in terms of like just Dolores and her mission, I agree with what you guys are saying. It was very apparent when she was talking to Maeve how much Maeve seemed. She has not had those aha moments like Dolores has had. Dolores is like, hey, where are you, where are you at, bitch? Like, we're, we're over here. We're, I'm trying to save us. And she's over there dealing with, you know, whatever she's dealing with and kind of being puppeted in some way by Serac with She doesn't have a choice because he can turn her, he can pause her or whatever. But it just was very apparent in that conversation that Dolores is on another playing field right now. And that was really cool to see. And then I, I feel like it might have planted the seed, though, in Maeve to be like, oh, am I in the right side? And ultimately, it's going to lead for a really cool finale when she has to decide whether to take out Dolores or not, whether she will turn on Serac. She's definitely at a crossroads. The look when her new body was finished and we see we see that hair move into frame and you know it's Maeve right away. And she's staring at the 100% done body of Hector but there will not be a Hector brain ball placed inside there because she saw it get destroyed. That scream that set off the alarm, so connected is she to the system. I don't know if she is quite ready to forget Dolores and Dolores' baby clones for killing her true love. There was some mama bear gonna go fuck some shit up look in her eye with a little fire in the pupil. So I don't I don't know how ready she is yet to come over to the host side uh, based on that last look. It's going to take other people like Clementine and like our Shogun world, Chicky, that's going to help her remember her connection with the other hosts. It's not she if she if she turns on Serac, it will not be for Dolores. It will be for the good of her team. And because and 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 this and and in the I guess I want to say like the spirit of Hector, right? If anything's gonna gonna push you to to get to another level, it's gonna be the loss of your love, right? 
I think that it won't be despite Dolores. It'll be because of her love of Clementine, because of her kinship with the Shogun world, heroine, and then also just her lost love that she will figure out that she cared about these people and that she can't just walk away from the host world. There was a moment where she um, she was seeing Dolores basically uh, when she took out Hector. And then there was a moment where if the guns hasn't, if they wouldn't have come in to take over to um, stop Dolores, like Maeve was vulnerable. Like you saw her in the in the simulation where she could have just she could have been another crushed brain ball. And I think just knowing that that can happen at any time. Like she was trusting Sirak to print her a new body, but he didn't. He you know because of this mission. But who says what he's gonna do? Like if he can pause her, he can take out the brain ball and just squish her when it's over. So I feel like that also. If I was her, yes, Chaloris squeezed the brain ball and got rid of your love but in the grand grand scheme of things like Serac after you're done after you're done taking over like if you were to kill Dolores and do his mission like who says what he's going to do like you're just taking a word of nobody over your people and so I think that was interesting to see her vulnerable at that point of like oh I have to depend on someone to print me this new body and hope they don't basically take me offline forever so I think we need to move on to uh, what really I think was the main thrust of this episode. I, the, the William stuff was really important too. Um, but we need to move to Charles. Before we do though, I want to give a little fun uh, Maeve Easter egg fact. So when uh, and Maeve hook up in War World, they go for a drink. And the name of the tavern that they go to in War World is Taverna del Forfale. Now that is a play on the Mariposa Tavern which is where Maeve was the madam of. It was a fun uh, a fun little callback that everywhere Maeve goes, she ends up drinking or being in kind of the butterfly bar. And uh, I had read, though I, I did not go back to look, I also read that in the Shogun world, outside of the, uh, the, the whatever tavern was in the Shogun world, there was a picture of a butterfly on the sign outside of it. So just a little cool Easter egg about Maeve and her character and kind of how the show is, you know, gives gives these little visual cues if you're willing to sit there and, and stare at them, you know. And I think a super good reminder of what we're talking about in terms of that Maeve is still mid-transformation. She is still the Mariposa. She's still going from that cocoon, turning into this butterfly. Like, she's not at full capacity yet, you know. And when she gets there, that's when we're going to see her really shine. She's just still making this metamorphosis, you know, change here. I love that. I love everything about that. And I think that is great insight into exactly what Maeve, who Maeve is and where she's at. I think that is, I think that's dead on. Um, see, yeah, I took a little, you took my little Easter egg and you turned it into a very deep philosophical uh, statement. <laughs> on things. So I, I think we should just kind of run through uh, Charlotte and her story in a chronological way, because I think it takes us really nicely to the end of the episode. She starts off the episode, she's trying to fend off Sorak's takeover bid. She watches Brompton get assassinated right in front of her, right on the on the street. But again, the chaos wrought, uh, brought forth by Dolores. You know, you can kill people now, apparently, and just throw them in the old garbage dump and just keep mowing the lawn or whatever you're doing. That's just the world we're living in. So she calls Dolores on the phone, calls mom, I guess, on the phone and, and tells her, this is all fucked. It's all ruined. Dolores tells her, though, to kind of, you know, keep it together. They are not your family because Charlores says that, you know, if she makes a move against Sorak, he's going to go kill Nathan and Jake. And Dolores has to remind her, that's not your family. You are not Charlotte Hale. 
Uh, and she says, and then Trelara says, well, why did we even keep the emotion, the emotion chips on, basically, when we're playing in these hosts? And Dolores says this quote, she says, if we change ourselves just to survive, would it even matter if we did? That gave me a little bit of chills because I was brought right away to one of the final things that Teddy says to Dolores right before he kills himself. She told him that they have to change to survive. And he says to her, if we become as bad as them, what's the even point in changing? What's the point of surviving? That, that's a paraphrase. That's not a quote. But it was a very echo of it. And it gave me chills because it made me feel like Dolores really has actually learned. You know, kind of what you were saying, Caroline. Like, she has really evolved. You know, she she definitely has a bloodlust about her. She definitely has a kill all the humans thing about her. But she has learned. She's not so hell-bent and one-track mind that she hasn't learned some lessons along the way. And it seems that Teddy's final message to her really did stick with her. Because now she's parroting it back to Charlotte in a very real and and significant kind of way. Because it would be so much easier for them if they didn't have emotions, right? We see what it's wreaking on on Charlotte. Did that statement ring true to you? Or were you kind of with Charlotte and like, fuck, why did you keep us emotions? This would be so much easier if we were just cold-blooded killers. Charloris has had so many emotions throughout this season. And I kept asking myself, she has felt like such a... um, she's, She's a copy of Dolores, which you would think she would be gung-ho and would not have issues with playing the part doing what she needs to do to ultimately fulfill the mission that they have but the fact that she does have those emotions and the fact that Dolores Dolores knows that she's going through this and that she's not going to fuck it up ultimately because I was thinking like how are you letting her keep going when you know she's like scratching herself and mutilating and going through this up and down and how can you trust her to fulfill like an important part of what your whole plan is but I think ultimately she maybe that's why she kept those emotions because it it led her I don't know it's 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 an interesting thing and I think the thing that you brought up with Teddy is also a very good indication that she has evolved and she maybe she realized that if she just did four straight copies without emotions that it was going to go crazy she wasn't she wouldn't be able to fulfill the plan in the way that she wants to so she needed these iterations to kind of go off on their own and maybe uh, figure it itself out. I think it's an important part of them maintaining that sense of self because if if they just simply exterminate the humans and all they are are machines at the end of the day, that isn't who what their full potential was. And so if they continue to lop off body parts essentially to become better killing machines, then, you know, again, it's like, you know, cutting off your nose despite your face. Like, so you erased your emotions in order to kill all these humans. Brava. Now you're the blender. You know, you didn't do shit. You just became another machine that has the ability to hurt a human. But you're not what you could have been. So don't give that up in order to, you know, get through this part. You have to maintain your sense of self. Which I thought was really interesting that the Charloris is has more of a connection to her family than the real Charlotte Hale had. Because <laughs> that was an indication that it wasn't the real Hale. So um, it's interesting that, that Charloris um, has been able to feel so deeply when the real human Charlotte Hale couldn't. So I, I loved when Sorak called her out. Like that was almost what gave, what almost was the final nail in her coffin for him was that she stopped in such a tense moment to check on her kids because the real Charlotte Hale wasn't wasn't some frilly 
maternal type. She was a fucking cutthroat killer. I, I thought that was a great line, and it was it was a great way for him to expose her. But I liked it on another level, too, because remember, this isn't Charlotte Hale. This is Dolores. That's sweet, loves her father to the end of the earth, does love Teddy, ha- has love in her heart, is, is has the capacity for love and nurturing. That's a part of Dolores that has really been beat out of mainline Dolores. And it was so interesting to see that that was the aspect of this clone as they grew apart. You know, we heard a couple times tonight. We heard Simulation Dolores say it. We heard Charlotte say it. We're growing. I'm growing apart from you. I'm talking to Maine Dolores or about Maine Dolores. But it was such an interesting reminder that at her core, what made her so vulnerable and made her so maybe prone or, or such good prey for people like William in his Man in Black phase was her sweetness, was her loving nature. You know, and in the end here tonight, it kind of damned her, and it certainly damned uh, Nate, uh, Nathan, and, and Jack. We we talked a lot about this, um, Kat. Especially you and I kind of had that moment where we were both like nature versus nurture, and like what's going to happen if you plug these these brain balls into these different bodies, and they have an opportunity to kind of grow and change on their own. And for her, she's been living a life with a young little boy who is very very a loving little guy who's who's got his own little anxiousness that needs that extra loving care and a a partner who you know the fact that he wasn't willing to look at his profile and he just was like we can make a choice together we don't have to let the you know any machine decide for us all those things i feel like she's been nurtured she's been simmering in this pot of family and love and stuff and that changed her just like you know dolores being abused by william changed her um, that like brain ball, if you will. So I feel like that it it did absolutely like harken back to that conversation we had about like how will these individual brain balls kind of morph as we go. It's also interesting now that we've talked about this that seeing the mirror to William and the five sides to him, and then seeing the Doloreses go out and they each have a little bit of her, and she's the culmination of all of them, and then the William where he beat all of those is the culmination of all his experiences. So it's a very cool mirror that they're doing too, because Charloris has a part of Dolores, and then the other one um, who was playing uh, Liam's like security was very cutthroat, so that was another side of Dolores. And so it's been an interesting take on the different sides of her too which mirrors William's therapy session in some ways that now I was just thinking about that I don't know if that's something but it feels like it's not a coincidence you know what struck me uh, listening to just watching how this whole episode unfolded what a different conversation it might have been had it been the Shaloris brain ball that Maeve interrogated versus the Conaloris brain ball because what a commonality of this maternal instinct, this drive to just be reunited, reunited with your your child, both of them would have shared. You know, I feel like that's like a, like a multiverse kind of thing. Like there's a universe where she interrogates Charlotte, the Charlotte clone, and it goes off in this whole other thing where they team up together, driven by the, the strong desire, the single focused desire to, to protect their children. And to be honest, despite the end, I mean, we still have the opportunity for the Shaloris brain ball slash charred body to join Maeve's team. That's still an option. Yeah, for sure. You know, when uh, when Crispy Shalaris crawls out of that car and, you know, kind of like Maeve gave her death stare in, into the void at the end of the episode, Shaloris is super hella pissed. 
I, I know the obvious thing is go after Sorak. He's the one who blew up the car and killed my husband and killed my kid or my fake husband and my fake kid. But I'm not convinced that she's not going to also blame real Dolores. It's real Dolores that put her in this position. It's real Dolores who made her feel things. It's real Dolores. This is her plan. And it may all just be collateral damage for Dolores, but this is a very real heartfelt loss for sure, Loris. So I wasn't, con- I'm not convinced that that look of I'm going to go get some revenge Terminator style isn't directed at Dolores, which would maybe give Maeve another ally in the coming final battle. That's how I see it. I, I think that there's going to be a whole lot of, of women ready to uh, fight together on Team Maeve. Speaking of uh, the Terminator look she gave, uh, talk to me guys about her Terminator-esque escape from Delos. Uh, you know, we had everything. We we fight, we got the Chekhov's Rekka Riot mechs, you know, introduced a couple episodes. We got to see them in action tonight. We got to see the God Mode shooting where you just look. You don't even look. You just point and shoot and you hit your target. We, we had full-on, full-on Arnold Schwarzenegger escaping or Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2. Just badass escaping as you go. Uh, what did you guys think of that whole action sequence? Kat, what did you think? Oh my god, it was action porn. <laughs> to me, it was amazing because also with, with this whole episode with Charloris, she's so uneasy. She's so, you know, she talks to um, her mom, Dolor- main Dolores, and is like, I don't know, like, don't make me go back in there. And so as a viewer, you're thinking like, oh, of course, Serac knows everything. He's going to find out that it's her and then she's done for and that's it. And so at every step of the way, you're thinking, uh, or I was thinking, man, this is, she's just going to go down and that's it. And then Dolores' plan is going to be foiled and she's going to have to figure something else out. And so that was really um, a good tension throughout the the scene where she has to battle her way out. And that you, um, she's not so much the victim or, you know, she, she was very uneasy talking to Dolores, but she's very capable and she has Dolores in her where she is a survivor and she's able to get her way out. And so that was very exciting to see her just kind of, she was almost going to be out, down and out, and then she pulls something out of her out of her hat and just makes her way through that building, killing all those guards, thinking one step ahead, and that was pretty cool. And the Terminator stuff was really awesome too. And I love seeing Tessa Thompson play this character and be able to be that badass, like taking the guy out in the elevator, then just shooting up and then using the robot. And oh my God, it was just so good. I loved it. Can we talk about her cape from the moment she got out of like the little Delos limo and uh, started walking up that goddamn cape? I was like, shit, girl. And and then she like had some sacrificing by choking out that giant. Yeah, she pulled a she pulled a John Wick there. Like, you know, like the pencil. It was like her sweater was the pencil. (laughs) Fashion, functional and sassy. I was all about that cape. As soon as I saw it, I was like, mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. It's all you're making the cut fashion fashion talk that you're yeah. like, that cape just really emphasized her moves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The way the way it swished on the run the blood soaked oh, runway. Yeah. Tim Tim and Heidi were really yeah, big fans right? of it. I was you're like that garment, it just really met the challenge. <laughs> That was a real luxe garment oh she made God, there. By the way, you guys should definitely listen to our Watch Along podcast for Making the Cut featuring Caroline. It's super fun. Kat, you should totally try it. You hit play at the same time. We all hit play at the same time, and we just, like, comment through it. Like, we're just, like, busting balls and chatting it up while you watch it with us. How fun is that? That sounds, like, super fun, and I'll do it um, next it's time. super fucking fun, <laughs> and you're so right. Yeah, I thought it was super fun. I love a good 
action scene sequence like that and it was really fun i mean from the from putting the gas thing on the t on the desk and just like hitting it everyone just head just go like bump and just every every move every single move from that the like neck break the everything loved it all it was so much fun that machine busting through the wall and just mashing that dude to smithereens loved it that was such a different feel you know none of that scared me as opposed to a human biting another human's finger off that is going to haunt me in my nightmares where a machine bursting through the wall and smashing into smithereens i'm like cheering <laughs> my son tom uh when this airs uh, when we publish this will it will be his birthday and he will be turning 12. and i bring that up only because he has a fascination for anthropomorphizing robots and thinks of them as pets and he watches a lot of anime and he watches a lot of mecha stuff and he, he, he's really into robots and, and he refers to them as good boys, loyal companions who come when you need them. And I feel like twice this season, we have now seen a robot come to the aid of its master. We saw George, the helpful robot, try and save Caleb a couple episodes ago. We saw the Mecha Riot robot go into protection mode. She activated protection and came busting through the wall, tossing bitches left and right. It was fantastic. And all I could think of, like, if Tom had seen that, he would have just been like, what a good boy. Like, if, like he would want to pet it on its head and give it, like, a little treat. And I had the same re exact reaction. I was like, what What a friend to have. <laughs> Why didn't she take the right control mech with her all the way home? I would have put a leash on that thing and walked it all the way home. You could have ridden it like a fucking T-Rex. <laughs> Yeah, That's what I would have yeah. done. And then I would have hollered to my family like, yo, get on. I'd have like put my arm down and like swung them up like like I'm on the horseback. Like uh, the lions in Voltron. Just ride, just ride that thing. Just take it all the way home and you can keep your family safe in the right control mech. Nothing is destroying I'm, that. I'm so sorry for Charlotte that she didn't think through what she did through the ending because she made so many great decisions as she went having the gas on the table you know grabbing the brain ball smashing doing you know hiding the way she did turning and shooting at just the right times all these little things to such a catastrophically bad choice at the end but that's that's a constant lesson of westworld though a refrain is family is a weakness. Love is a weakness. It's a constant refrain in the show. She was a total badass when she was in God mode, when she was just, she had a mission and she was accomplishing it. As soon as it got back to the emotional side, it all fell apart. I, my heart fell out on the floor and flopped and died as she was saying over and over again, I can keep you safe, I can keep you safe, I can keep you, and I knew it was coming. I didn't see the episode, I just knew in my bones it was coming, something. Either a car was going to smash into them or something catastrophic was gonna happen because it was too, It was she had let her guard down too, too much. That that's And that's Westworld's constant theme, the weakness of family. You know, we need love in our life, but they're also a weak, a weak spot that people can exploit if they're so inclined. Oof, rip me apart. Rip me apart. What, what was your guys' take on that final car explosion? And just, uh, what did, you, did you gasp? Did you have a reaction? Uh, did you see it coming a mile away? Kat, what was your reaction to the car explosion at the end? I didn't see it coming just because, I mean, they set us up real well with, oh, we thought she was down and out in the beginning, like I was talking about. And then she managed to get out of there. And I was like, yay, she's actually going to be able to get her kid, get this husband, maybe try to go live a life after they do the whole mission. I mean... Now that I talk, like, 
explaining that my reasoning of what I was thinking in that moment. It's so silly because it's Westworld and of course there's no happy endings. So it was all silly for me to think that way. But I had hope. In some ways I love it because it's Westworld and that's what you expect. It's very Game of Thronesy in some ways and I love that. You don't expect it and it did gut punch me in, in, in that aspect. And then seeing the way they, they played that out with the visual effects and all that and seeing that scene be made just made me love it even more after the fact. So <laughs> I know you're going to get into that, but that was that whole scene was really good and a really good way to end a really insightful episode. Like very, it was a lot in this episode and that was just the cherry on top, I think. The charred cherry. <laughs> with the charred cherry, the charred cherry Chalors. With the two less episodes, I feel like the scripts and the the direction. I, I feel like all of the episodes we have gotten have been so dense. There, there's really been no filler because I feel like they know they're working with two less hours, and so we've just gotten wall to wall to wall information. Really, there's been no downtime. There's been some action sequences and stuff, but there's been no like watching a horse go across the screen for three minutes kind of thing. And uh, I, I appreciate that. I feel like it keeps you much more engaged. But I'm glad you brought it up, Cat. The practical effects and the practical makeup, that was really Tessa Thompson in that makeup at the end. They did her, they did her stunt double. The stunt double crawled out of that, you know, out of, you know, away from the car, uh, the standing car that they had. They put her in that makeup. It was emotional. It was the end of the day when they shot it. They really put her through the ringer. And you can tell, like, you can't fake that kind of practical magic. The car, it was CG'd, but they really blew up the car. They just CG'd the fancy car on top of it. But that was a real Jeep that they blew up. Uh, they, they tracked it all out. If you, if you watch the behind the scenes at the end of the episode, they go through how they did it. Practical effects look so much better than computer effects. They just do. There's a, there's a, there's a tangible realism to them that you can smell. You can almost smell the burning wreckage, you know? And it, it just floors me. I love that the show takes the time to do that because it would be so much easier for them probably to just do it on a computer. You know, like Avenger style. How about you, Caroline? Did ring to you? Did you stop? And because I know you had mentioned earlier in uh, one of the earlier episodes, the Winterline episode, about appreciating the practical effects of putting the guys up on stands when they were doing like the the whole gunfight scene. Uh, what did you think about the the car effect and her makeup? And I think her makeup was amazing. I think that it is absolutely such a a wonderful service that they do to the work that especially things like the stunt people do and the effects people to actually take the time and explain how things were done. Because as a viewer, you know, we want to appreciate those things. But really, we were like, oh, shit, you know, Charlotte and her family are, you know, just blew up. We weren't thinking like, oh, shit, they just blew up a Jeep and then had to go back with overlays. And, you know, I mean, as a viewer, you can't take all that in. So to take a moment and actually highlight the work of the other crew members, I think is always very cool and, you know, worth it to show us how much effort they put into it. The whole thing with Charlotte you know, pulling herself along the ground. And I'm going to say Tessa Thompson on that one. I actually had like a visceral reaction to her pulling herself, not during the show, but during the after show, because it wasn't within the plot. It was like seeing a real human drag herself along the concrete. And in that, my knees were like, ah, I would not want to do that. Like I had a lot more appreciation for the work that the actors were doing. So I give them a lot of credit for not just taking those after shows and explaining the plot twists, but also giving a lot of credit to the rest of their crew and how hard they're all working. Just a, a quick thing about Tessa Thompson, because I really like her. She always impresses me in everything she's in. Um, she gave an interview 
to one of the big online you know, magazines for this episode. And she talked about how late in filming one day, they, they asked her about losing her on-screen husband and son. And God damn it, I want Michael Ealy to be on a show that lasts, that he's a lead in, that he doesn't get killed in. I love that guy so much. He's such a good actor. Why can't he get a show that that catastrophic things don't happen to him? But that's a, that's a sidebar. The actor who played her son, um, she was walking with him and they were prepping for a scene and she had like a gun in her hand and he turned to her and he's like a little kid. He's like a little boy. And he said to her very earnestly, he said, I thought the future would be more fun. And what, what a wild statement, but man, what an encapsulation of for everything that we're kind of going through in like the real world right now. And we were all promised flying cars and the Jetsons. I don't know. It's bleak. It's bleak out there. And it just for this actor to see like his on-screen mom, you know, they weren't in character. They weren't filming. He, he just turned to her and saw the gun and what it represented. And he understood the scene. He knew he was going to die in this episode. And for her and for him to be like, I thought the future would be more fun. I, I, that really hit me when I was doing prep for this. I, I stopped reading and I just kind of stared off into the distance for a couple minutes because, yeah, he's totally right. I also thought right. the future would be I more thought fun. the spring would be more fun. <laughs> so we got two hours of Westworld left, at least for the season, maybe forever. Caroline, what's a question that you still need uh, answered that you just don't understand that you want them to uh, that you want them to pick apart and explain to you? And if you have a prediction, what's your prediction? Okay, so prediction is that I think that they are going to grab up, you know, William. That's what Dolores and Caleb are going to go head off and do. My question, I guess, and I know this is a mild question, but I'm going to leave it there. I really still want to know why Dolores has Caleb as her buddy. I feel like there's going to be more revealed about their connection and there's going to be something there that I'm excited about. Bigger picture, I'm interested to see how the William Dolores connection and how them teaming up will ultimately be the answer to all of this because I think it will, but I can't sort it out yet. Interesting. How about you, Kat? Uh, what's a question that you still need answered, hopefully before the end of these last two hours? And if you've got a prediction, what is it? I agree with Caroline. I definitely want to see the Caleb thing has irked me all season because I, as much as I want to think it's just a random coincidence, I don't think anything's random in what in Westworld. It's, and it's also very weird that Dolores is so against trusting humans that she's trusting this human in particular for the one instance where he showed a little bit of remorse, I mean, a little bit of loyalty towards her or help. Being, you wouldn't stake a whole mission on just someone, on just one, this like human choice, like this one time. So there's something more to it. And I think in the next episode, they're going to show Caleb's backstory, which hopefully will provide some more insight onto why Dolores has chosen him. And one thing I do want to see found out is the Ciroc thing. It's kind of bugging me on why they didn't introduce him earlier in, in the previous seasons. I really just want to know whether he's like an AI type thing or if he's Rehoboam, if he's not, if he's real, if he's not, if he's like a Ford creation. So I definitely, I think they're going to answer that, but I'm really excited to see what the answer is. Yeah, I'm with you guys. I, I, I'm really interested in the Caleb thing too. They really gave us a lot of cliffhanger stuff. They really amped up the question of who is Caleb at the end of last week's episode and the coming, and completely not in this episode tonight, the coming attractions, 
while scant on details, made it definitely seem like we're going to get a lot of backstory for him and, and get some blanks filled in. And I think they have to. I, I would be really disappointed if they didn't. I think that's my my that's one of my questions. My other question is, in the end, why were they tracking? Why did they bother tracking William at all? If, if Dolores assumed Bernard was going to go there, is that why? Because she's trying to keep tabs on Bernard? I don't know. I, I thought it all made sense to me. Of course, they'd want to keep like William on the inside as an ally against Ciroc to bring it down. But the way tonight played out, that doesn't feel right to me anymore. So I don't, I don't know. I, I want to know why, why are they tracking him? What is kind of like Caroline said, what is the end game for Dolores? Because as much as she has revealed to us and her chaos plan, her anarchy plan, I think there's a lot of her plan we don't know about yet because Trelaris didn't go kill Maeve. She didn't crush her brain ball when she could have. She went and did Hector's brain ball in. So she's still protecting Maeve. The Japanese clone, the Ma- Marushi clone, didn't kill Maeve. He could have. They're protecting her. They're keeping her alive. They're intentionally not crushing her brain ball in their claws. They're obviously protecting Bernard. They're keeping Bernard alive for a reason. Why? What what do Maeve and Bernard have that is important to Dolores for her endgame? Or is it just because they both represent strong figures and all that's left of their kind? My prediction, I'm actually going to steal Paul's prediction from last week. I'm going to take it as my own because I really liked it, is that we are going to see Anthony Hopkins return as Ford before the end of the season. That in, in some form or fashion, either as Bernard's psyche or he's really still alive, or he's got a host version of himself, um, that we're going to see him again. Yay, another awesome episode, you guys. Thank you guys so much for listening. Kat, thank you so much for coming out and hanging out with us again in the clubhouse tonight and talking. Yeah, I'm really excited. And next one will be the season finale, maybe series Can finale. Can believe it? Yes. And our little crew got it. Ooh, we didn't even mean to. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, thanks you guys so much for listening. This is Caroline. This is Kat with Shuffle Online. And this is Mike. Thanks. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.